Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I'm Dr. Tanya Wright, the Clerkship Director here at the Hershey Medical Center, Penn State College of Medicine. And today we have a special guest with us. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, hi, I'm Elizabeth Newbury. I'm one of the certified nurse midwives here at Penn State Medical Center. We're so thrilled to have her. And today we're going to be walking through abnormal labor. If you would like to follow along on this topic, it's topic number 22 on the APGO Educational Objectives, which you can find at www.apgo.org backslash students. Let's get started. We'll start by looking at a case, Liz. Mm -hmm. This is patient Charlene. She's a 31-year-old woman at 40 weeks and six days gestation. She's presenting to labor and delivery with contractions. She has had an uncomplicated prenatal course thus far and is pretty healthy. Her contractions are every five to seven minutes for the past 10 hours, and she denies leaking of fluid or vaginal bleeding. Her first cervical exam that's performed by you is two centimeters dilated, 100% effaced, with a vertex presentation at minus three station. Fetal heart tones are normal at 140 beats per minute, and her contractions on the monitor are every five minutes. Otherwise, her physical exam and vital signs are within normal limits, and she receives an IV and has labs sent down for a CBC and type in screen. My first question for you, Liz, is how do you evaluate labor? The most effective way and really the only way we have to determine whether a woman is in labor or not is to assess the cervix for cervical change Um, because we can have contractions for many hours. However, the definition of labor is progressive cervical change caused by usually strong and frequent contractions for most women. Um, And so Charlene, unfortunately, did have to have a cervical exam uh, on presentation to labor and delivery to determine what was going on with her cervix. So I think it's really important that we try to understand some of the basic science principles behind labor. Um, Just as a review, how is contraction activity activated? So oxytocin is the hormone that is most responsible for contractions. Um, Uterine muscle activity is pretty constant throughout pregnancy. However, during labor and in the lead up to labor, uh, our oxytocin receptors increase um, and oxytocin uh, becomes more active and present, um, causing uterine contractions. The physiologic factors that regulate the phases of parturition are quiescence, characterized by uterine smooth muscle relaxation with maintenance of cervical structural integrity. Inherent myometrium contractility is suspended, and uterine muscle is primarily unresponsive to natural stimuli. Um, In activation, uh, the cervical extracellular matrix changes allow progressive increases in tissue compliance or softening. Cervical softening results from increased vascularity, stromal hypertrophy, glandular hypertrophy, and hyperplasia, and slow progressive structural changes of the extracellular matrix. Cervical collagen undergoes conformational changes in the covalent crosslinks between proteins that alter tissue strength and flexibility. So when we do a cervical exam and we say this patient has a soft cervix, that is a subjective way of talking about these phases. It's awesome. This is such an intricate process and we don't necessarily think about that when we're checking the cervix. So it's good that we have the opportunity to revisit that. Awesome. So going back to our case, Charlene is admitted. She has her IV. She has her labs resulted. Two hours later, she has no change to her cervix, but she's asking for pain medicine. Uh, 
She gets pain medicine and does fall asleep for some hours and wakes up again with the complaint of strong, painful contractions. At that time, her cervix is examined and now she is 6 centimeters dilated, 100% effaced, and minus 2 station. This is a change from her presenting exam, which was 2 centimeters, 100% effaced, and minus 3 station. She has artificial rupture of membranes performed by the team, which shows clear fluid, and an intrauterine pressure catheter is placed. The intrauterine pressure catheter is placed to look at the contraction frequency, but also to give us information about the strength of those contractions. The contraction strength on the IUPC, or intrauterine pressure catheter, is determined to be 200 Montevideo units. She subsequently does well. She receives an epidural. She is comfortable. But two hours later, her cervix is examined, and it is again 6 centimeters dilated. She is counseled by the team and waits an additional two hours and is examined again with contractions that are 200 Montevideo units, and her cervix is unchanged at 6 centimeters dilated, 100% effaced, and minus 2 station. Liz, what do you think about this patient's labor course? So... Charlene, at this point, has some evidence of um, protracted labor or even arrest of, um, of dilatation. Um, usually, we find that women progress f- fairly slowly from closed uh, to uh, six centimeters, and the most recent data suggests that six centimeters is a good place to consider somebody in active labor. Um, However, if people don't make change um, from six centimeters to 10 centimeters, uh, especially after we document um, adequate contractions with the help of an intrauterine pressure catheter, then we really need to be thinking about why this labor is prolonged and whether we're going to be able to affect a vaginal delivery. Yeah, what are you, so the team at this point is recommending that she actually has a C-section for delivery. Um, What is the reason for the patient's C-section? So at this point, the reason would be an arrest of dilatation. Um, As diagnosed by by adequate contractions, uh, Charlene has been um, ruptured, which does help labor progress, and she's been on oxytocin to ensure that the contractions are strong enough and frequent enough to cause the cervix to change. Because the cervix hasn't changed despite those strong adequate contractions and despite waiting several hours to give the cervix time to open further, then we really need to be thinking that she might not uh, progress any further. Got it. So I think what I'm hearing is, so she's technically in active labor because she's six centimeters based on the evidence that we have. She technically has strong enough contractions to be able to make cervical change in theory, but has not done so. And then we've given her a fair amount of time to demonstrate that um, with these powerful contractions that her cervix is not changing. And so therefore, this represents an arrest of dilation. That makes sense to me, Liz. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are some other patterns of abnormal labor? Abnormal labor patterns include protraction disorders when labor is prolonged, Uh, or rest disorders when labor has stopped. Both of these patterns occur in the active phases of labor. During the latent phase, labor disorder is difficult to diagnose because of the variation in latent phase duration. 
I want to remind you guys what the difference is between latent phase and active phase. Latent phase uh, is usually uh, occurring at the beginning of labor. People can have very strong regular contractions. However, generally it takes much longer at the beginning of labor for the cervix to respond to those contractions. It's at this point considered anywhere from zero centimeters dilatation until six centimeters. Active phase um, of labor uh, is when we see more regular progressive cervical change and generally stronger, more frequent contractions. Uh, the most recent data that we have suggests that six centimeters is a good place to start considering somebody in active phase. However, some women do enter active phase around four to five centimeters if their contractions are really strong and they're having regular cervical change. Because women can have variations in latent phase, we don't really consider someone to have a prolongation of the latent phase that would mean that we would need to deliver by C-section at that point. Um, generally, a prolonged latent phase is defined as more than 20 hours in a nulliparous patient and more than 14 hours in a multiparous patient. A prolonged latent phase certainly might be an indication for considering starting oxytocin to try and move things along yeah. faster. Um, but usually, in, in, assuming baby is doing well, we wouldn't have to do a C-section for a prolongation of the latent phase. That makes perfect sense to me. And then what about in the active phase? During the active phase, um, labor is prolonged uh, when that cervical dilatation takes longer than we expect. Um, Friedman curve usually uses a rate of nulliparous dilatation at one less than 1.2 centimeters per hour, and for multiparous women, a rate of less than 1.5 centimeters per hour. Um, an arrest of dilatation is traditionally diagnosed when there's no cervical change over um, at least two to four hours, um, assuming that we're already ruptured and have adequate contractions based on IUPC measurements when on oxytocin. Um, so that's kind of like what our patients experiencing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Second stage arrest is diagnosed when there's no descent despite excellent maternal effort when pushing. The length of time that it takes to make that diagnosis does vary depending on whether a woman is nulliparous or multiparous and on whether she has an epidural or not. Generally for a multiparous woman without an epidural, we would expect to see good descent within an hour of adequate pushing. For uh, a nulliparous woman, who does not have an epidural, we increase that time to about two hours. Um, but for a nulliparous woman who does have an epidural, the length of time that it can take to see really good descent can be as long as four hours. Some women with a prolonged or arrest of the second stage of labor are candidates for an operative vaginal delivery. Uh, indications for that would be prolongation. Um, or a suspicion of immediate or potential fetal compromise if we're seeing really significant changes in the fetal heart rate. Another indication for an operative vaginal delivery would be maternal exhaustion. She just can't do it anymore. Um, not everybody is a good candidate to have an operative vaginal delivery. The criteria would be that the fetus is already quite low. Um, so an outlet operative delivery means that the baby is crowning. We can see the presenting part, or the head ideally, at the introitus, um, versus low uh, operative delivery, which is uh, considered as less, greater than or equal to a plus two station. Um, 
women would need to have adequate anesthesia before doing an operative delivery because it can be quite painful and they need to have an empty bladder. There are two, two ways to get the baby out vaginally with an operative vaginal delivery. The first would be a vacuum, um, and that is applied to the fetal head. Um, there are some increased risk of fetal morbidity with a vacuum, such as a cephalohematoma or a subgaleal hemorrhage. Um, the other option is forceps, uh, and forceps have a slightly increased risk of pelvic floor injury and dysfunction, such as um, anal sphincter injury or incontinence compared to vacuum. Also, people, uh, providers need a little more training to become competent and adept at forceps use. Uh, but it is something that we can offer women to try and facilitate a vaginal delivery in cases when we're not seeing that second stage progress that we would hope for. Okay, so I guess to summarize, the first stage would be from zero centimeters all the way to 10 centimeters and then stage two would be during the pushing part. Mm -hmm. And then stage three is actually delivering the placenta, which we'll actually cover in another podcast. Exactly. Um, within stage one, there's the active phase and the latent phase. And the latent phase will, in general, represent the cervical change that happens at a much slower rate um, before getting to somewhere between four and six centimeters, although now uh, literature is showing that that's closer to six centimeters and then the active phase, which is above six centimeters, mm -hmm. um, at which point cervical change tends to happen more aggressively and more quickly, <laughs> um, depending on whether you're a nullip or a multip. Exactly. That is perfectly clear to me, Liz, and I thank you that you made that clarification. Yes, during the active phase of the first stage of labor, if we plot cervical dilatation on a curve, that's usually when we see that exponential curve start. So now that we have a pretty good understanding of all the possible abnormalities, I'm trying to wrap my mind around why this happens. Yeah, so if we're talking about what causes prolongation of labor or arrest of labor, um, we need to think about three contributing factors. Uh, there can be an issue with power, which refers to the contraction strength and the frequency of contractions or the pattern of contractions, as well as the mom's effort that she puts into pushing. Uh, there can be an issue with the passenger, which refers to issues with the fetus. Those issues can include abnormal lie, um, abnormal presentations, such as an occiput posterior presentation, fetal position, and fetal attitude. Um, additionally, fetal size can impede progress through the pelvis. Passage refers to maternal structures. They can be the skeletal uh, structures of the pelvis or soft tissue abnormalities that obstruct the birth canal. The shape or the size of the pelvis can impede fetal descent into the birth canal, and that can make a successful vaginal delivery less likely uh, or more difficult. So if this patient had refused these sections, which can happen, um, and despite our best recommendation, opted to continue with labor despite this abnormal pattern, what are some of the maternal and fetal complications that could have occurred? So with prolonged labor, uh, a very common complication is chorioamnionitis, uh, infection of um, the chorion and the amnion. Uh, especially, especially with prolonged rupture of membranes, it increases the fetal exposure to normal vaginal bacteria. A sign of chorioamnionitis would be temperature elevation for the mom, uh, a uterus that feels tender to palpation, an elevated white blood cell count, 
And in extreme cases, the amniotic fluid can be purulent. Uh, often we'll see uh, changes in vital signs. Mom may become tachycardic uh, in addition to febrile, and baby's heart rate could show um, a response to infection with uh, fetal tachycardia or decrease in the fetal heart rate variability. If this occurs during labor, after delivery, the infant is at risk for a, a serious infection that can develop into sepsis. So it's really important to diagnose and manage chorioamnionitis in a timely fashion. Protracted labor can also be associated with postpartum hemorrhage, which can be caused by uterine atony. This can occur both with a successful vaginal delivery or with a c-section. Um, basically, if the uterus has been exposed to oxytocin for really long periods of time, the oxytocin receptors can be less responsive to oxytocin after the delivery, which increases the risk of uterine atony. You guys are going to talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, actually, now that you mentioned it, tell us a little bit more about the use of oxyto oxytocin. Um, yes, we use oxytocin uh, to strengthen the contractions during labor and also after delivery to reduce the risk of postpartum hemorrhage. Oxytocin is a peptide hormone that's synthesized in the hypothalamus and secreted in a pulsatile fashion from the posterior pituitary. It stimulates smooth muscle uterine contractions. In early labor, the number of receptors in the uterus increases nearly 200-fold, with most of these receptors being concentrated in the uterine fundus uh, compared to the lower uterine segment and the cervix. Oxytocin concentration is relatively stable throughout pregnancy until it, con it increases in the second stage of labor. It's a potent endogenous uterotonic, and it stimulates prostaglandin release from the amnion with a biologic half-life of three to four minutes. Exogenous intravenous oxytocin, also known as pitocin, can be titrated to produce adequate uterine contractions for augmentation or induction of labor. Um, and usually we start a very low dose of oxytocin and gradually increase it over time until contractions are very strong and regular to help uh, hopefully move us towards a vaginal delivery. Contraindications to oxytocin during labor include the same contraindications for induction of labor, which can include, but aren't limited to, abnormal fetal lie, such as breach or transverse position, placenta previa, or fetal heart rate abnormalities that could uh, be a sign of fetal intolerance of labor. So say she does have a C-section and everything goes well and she has no complications related to postpartum hemorrhage, um, and she'd like to know if she's a candidate to try for vaginal delivery in the future, something we call a trial of labor after cesarean section, or TOLAC. Uh, what are the risks and benefits of a trial of labor after cesarean section? So luckily, this patient did have a low transverse um, cesarean section. Patients who have a classical cesarean delivery or a T-shaped incision in the uterus, which means that the uterus was incised vertically through the muscular portion of the uterus, are not candidates for trial of labor after C-section due to the high rate of uterine rupture, which is about 4 to 9%. Um, for women who have a history of a low transverse C-section or a low vertical incision, which means that the incision did not go above the level of the round ligament, um, their rate of uterine rupture is much lower, about 05 to 1% in general. So you mentioned about uterine rupture. Patients with a low transverse C-section having a risk of 0.5 to 1% chance. 
What would be the outcome of this if that were to happen? So should uterine rupture occur, um, it could lead to serious sequelae. There's a 10% chance of uh, fetal hypoxic brain injury or death uh, after a uterine rupture. For women who experience a uterine rupture during labor or spontaneously, they are at risk of losing a lot of blood as well. Um, which can lead to maternal organ damage or death. There's also a chance that we may need to do a, a cesarean hysterectomy to completely remove the uterus should we be unable to control the bleeding uh, in the case of a rupture. Um, cesarean hysterectomy is a pretty uh, involved surgery. We tend to lose a lot of blood uh, at the time of cesarean hysterectomy, so that's certainly something that we'd prefer to avoid <laughs> if yeah. possible. Most definitely. So for a patient like this who's had a history of C-section for an arrest of dilation disorder and is wanting to discuss plans for a future pregnancy and delivery, what would factor into your decision-making on her candidacy for a vaginal delivery? Well, the most important thing, as we already discussed, is confirming that her uh, uterine incision is a low transverse or low vertical incision. Um, there are a number of other factors that increase our uh, odds of having a successful vaginal birth after c-section. One is why the c-section was done. Um, a c-section for breech presentation, for instance, is a little less likely to recur in this pregnancy than a c-section for a really uh, obvious arrest of labor or arrest of descent when we need to be thinking about why that baby didn't fit through the pelvis. Um, so certainly we want to know how big the baby is as we approach term because a large baby would decrease your odds for a successful uh, vaginal birth after C-section. Um, maternal factors uh, having to do with success of VBAC, uh, BMI is a big thing. Um, if they've ever had a prior vaginal birth at all um, and their age does seem to factor into rates of success as well. There are online calculators which factor in some of these characteristics and that can help us uh, adequately counsel people about uh, risks and benefits and, and whether they would be more likely to successfully end up with a vaginal birth. Generally, a vaginal birth is gonna be less risky for mom and baby um, than a major surgery. However, an elective repeat C-section does carry fewer risks than an emergency section or a C-section done after labor has started. Um, fewer risk, for example, of infection, of bleeding, of damage to the organs around uh, the uterus, or of um, fetal sequelae from intolerance of labor. Liz, thank you so much for the information that you've provided today. It has been very helpful walking through the physiology of labor and abnormal labor. I hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast and will join us again in the future. Have a great day.